We're heading to Acts long term, which is the sequel. Let's look at the gospel. Let's look at some of the highlights of the passion of Christ and some of the things that happened in that 40 day period where the resurrected Christ was still on earth. And so that's what we're going to do. And so today we begin by looking at the betrayal. And what I want to do with these eight sermons, or what I hope to do, is really contrast the human actions with the glory of Jesus Christ, with his actions, his behavior. And so today, what I want us to see is the contrast between the betrayal of Judas, as well as the rejection of the Jews, with how we see the Lord act in both the initiation of the new covenant and the garden episode, the garden where he prays. And so you'll see the title this week, Passion to Pentecost, Betrayed the Passion Begins. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 26. So please turn your Bibles to Matthew 26. And you'll see this passage on the board. This is a a passage from Ephesians 2. And some of my favorite passages in the New Testament is when you see the words, but God. You'll see some situation, some scenario, usually a reflection of human nature or sin. And you'll see but God. And this incredible contrast of grace. And you see that here in Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And it's in that contrast, as we see the depths of sin and human depravity, that the glory of Christ and his gospel shines the brightest. And that is my hope and prayer for the next eight weeks, that each week the Lord will open our hearts and let us see that great contrast. And so we begin today. And you'll see the sermon idea for this week's passage. As we witness the start of Jesus' passion, we will behold the steadfast and submissive obedience of our Savior played out against the backdrop of human rejection and betrayal. And of course, that will be Judas's betrayal. Let's pray. Father, we come before you again in prayer. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be with us today as we know you are, and that you would fill this place. Help our eyes to be open to your truth, and help us to apply the glory of the gospel to our life according to your will, and according to the will you have for this church. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. First, what we're going to see are five subpoints or mini points in the narrative that really paint the picture of Judas's betrayal as we as the passion as we as we get close to the beginning of the passion, and then we're going to see the climax of the narrative, and in some ways, the climax of the entire Gospel of Matthew uh, with Jesus again uh, instituting the new covenant, the Lord's Supper, and then in the garden where he prays, and then we'll simply close out as we see the betrayal finish. And so, the first thing I want us to look at. Just in simply verses 1 and 2. And by the way, you want to have your Bibles definitely open and following along because we're going to skip around. We can't read every verse. It's a long passage. But we're going to skip around and look at some key passages. And the first one in verses 1 or two, one and 2 is we see that the betrayal is known. What I love here is that Matthew begins this chapter by showing us, before we get to the, the high priest wanting to kill Jesus, before we get to Judas becoming the betrayer, We see here right at the beginning of chapter 26 that Jesus is in control of the whole situation. The betrayal was already known. Look at verses 1 and 2. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. 
This probably happened late Tuesday or early Wednesday of the Passion Week. And we know in the Gospel accounts there's several times where Jesus tells his disciples about his coming passion, tells them about his death and resurrection. And what's amazing in almost every account, especially in Mark's Gospel, you see this, right after the next passage is them arguing about which one of them is the greatest. It's like they didn't get it. They missed it. But what Jesus does, and it's so wonderful, is he puts this framework so that once the Holy Spirit enters them later on, they'll be able to come back and see the whole plan and understand the whole climatic moment in redemptive history. And so as it comes true, the lights come on and it makes sense. It will make sense for them in the future. But he's making it so clear here there that God is sovereign, that God is in control of this event. It reminded me of now you understand I'm not I'm kind of a skeptic when it comes to like miracles and, and I have to fight against that. It's just in my nature. And so I'm not one of these guys that believes in all this, you know, sometimes it, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt if you tell me because it's, it's me. I just am a skeptic. So you have to know that before I tell you what I'm going to tell you. This is a true story. In 1993, I was in the Coast Guard in New York City and I had this dream that me and my buddy Rick, who we were out in the Coast Guard, we were teamed up on the same crew in the Coast Guard. We, we, we were like cruising along in New York and there's this blimp that we watched crash. Now, it wasn't a traditional blimp. It, it was from some cartoon I watched with Yogi Bear as a kid where it was like this wooden boat that had a balloon over it, and it kind of crashed. Anyways, I told Rick this dream, and we laughed about it. You know, you tell your buddies your dream. Then, like a couple months later, it's 4th of July. My parents were on the boat. They were up in town. We're taking them around on the Hudson River. And all of a sudden, we look over over the buildings, and a blimp is crashing. It was a Pizza Hut blimp. And I'll never forget, when we looked and realized what it was, my friend Rick looked at me like, just crazy, because the dream meant nothing until we actually saw something happen, and then it kind of freaked us out. So these words of Jesus are really, it's almost like they're falling on deaf ears. The disciples just don't get it. They don't understand, but one day when the gospel is complete, when they receive the Holy Spirit, they can come back here and see that, this, that all of this happened according to the plan of God. And we see this in Acts 2, actually in Peter's sermon, his first sermon on the day of Pentecost. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know, this Jesus, here it is, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You see in that last statement, the combination of the sovereignty of God and yet the human actors, the human responsibility. And so it's important for us as we go in here to know that the betrayal is known. Jesus is in complete control, and this is according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. But not only was the betrayal known, we also see that there was the need of a betrayer. We see in verses 3 through 5, the chief priests come. They have their little plan. John tells us in his gospel that this was inspired by the resurrection of Lazarus. That made them even more. Now, they wanted to kill him from the beginning, but that really irked them. That really got them upset. And so we see them here conspiring. We need to kill him, but not, do not during the feast because they feared the people. And they had good reason to fear the people because during Passover, the population of Jerusalem swelled fivefold. It's a lot of people. And every year at this point, there was a lot of messianic hope attached to this event. And so if they got, they got wind that they were going to kill uh, this, this figure, this Jesus, who was still very popular, well, it would be very uh, hard for them. So they wanted to do it by stealth. 
Now, they didn't know they needed a betrayer because that would have been a great idea. They didn't know that that was going to come and fall in their lap, as we'll see in a few moments. But they needed a way to get to the Lord. What's really funny for me in the text is it says by stealth. Now, does stealth work on God? There's no stealth technology that works on God. So I find it humorous that uh, they had this plan. They didn't know who they were dealing with. But nonetheless, we see that they needed a betrayer. They needed a way to get to the Lord without setting off the people. So the betrayal was known. A betrayer was needed. And next, a very important passage that we don't always connect with Judas, but a betrayer was inspired. This, this anointing of Jesus' feet in Bethany, I believe, was the event that really what was it for Judas. Okay, He said, all right, I've had enough. Now, we know that Judas was associated with the zealots. We know that all the disciples really didn't get it when it came to Jesus' mission. And they thought more in physical terms of a Messiah and of a king. But we look at this passage. We know from John's account that this is happening uh, with, with Martha and Mary and Lazarus. It's in Simon the leper's home, but those three siblings are there. And the woman who anoints Jesus' feet uh, is Mary, the same Mary in Luke 10 that we see at the Lord's feet while her sister Martha is busy serving. And you see how she takes this alabaster flask. This was an incredibly precious ointment. It probably came from the nard plant, India. Uh, according to John's gospel, it's worth 300 denarii, which is the annual wage of a working man. And so she takes this, and you probably heard in other sermons that once you open this jar, once you break it, there is no putting it back in. It's kind of like all at once. In fact, most people who, who could afford to have an alabaster flask of this type of ointment, they never used it. They would pass it down from family to family. It was, it was very precious. When I was a kid, maybe you had this, we had the living room in our house that you could never go in. Like, no one could ever use the living room. You couldn't, I mean, alarms would go off if the kid's, like, foot went in there. I think Christmas was the only day we ever used it. And so this alabaster flask was kind of like that. You had it, but you never used it. And so it was an incredible sacrifice for Mary to break this open and anoint Jesus' feet. And this is where we see, in, in verse 8, you'll see it. The disciples saw it, and they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? Why this waste? This could have been sold to help the poor. And again, in John's account, we'll see this here. Actually, I have this slide for you on the screen. In John's account, we see that it was actually Judas uh, that he focuses on and his attitude towards the event. Look what the, the text says. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? John informs us a little insight here. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used it, used to help himself to what was put into it. And so I think Judas is struggling already. And he's seeing Jesus. Maybe he is paying attention. Jesus is continuing to talk about his death. And he sees Jesus as kind of a defeatist, like he's giving up. What an opportunity we have, Jesus, to, to march on Rome, to, to have the kingship. And, of course, Judas, I think, is, is just really thinking about his own place in the kingdom, that he's going to be his right-hand man. He's going to have a power and money and wealth. And yet this Jesus, right at the end, is starting just to kind of give up. Talk about how he's going to get arrested. And here he's talking about his death and allowing this woman to waste all this money on his feet. And I believe this was enough for Judas. I think this event inspired him. Look what, uh, as we continue reading, verse 10. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. Before we move on, I just want to focus on that. I love that passage. The what the disciples considered a waste, Jesus said was beautiful. 
What an incredible thing. It reminds me of a song, something beautiful. Just how many times do we consider something a waste or not important or someone a waste or not important that Jesus thinks is beautiful, considers beautiful? The disciples found themselves on the opposite end of where Jesus' opinion was. And we know Jesus' opinion is the opinion that really matters. So I think that's a great point of application. We just pause and think of that. Something beautiful, something beautiful. Let us always be on the same side of Jesus. When he thinks something is beautiful, let us think it's beautiful as well, because it was. And then verse 13, he says, as a memorial, wherever this gospel is proclaimed, this story is going to be included. That Think about this right now, 2,000-something years later, we're fulfill, almost 2,000 years later, we're fulfilling what he says here. We're mentioning this great act, this memorial of Mary anointing his feet before his death. How beautiful is that? Nonetheless, a betrayer is inspired. And then we see in verse 14, the word then, that word then connects us back to the preceding section. So there's a little bit of evidence in the text that indeed the, the anointing, the waste from Jesus' point of view of this, of this expensive ointment led Jesus right to go, to go right to the chief priest. Imagine them. They're already thinking, we've got to kill this guy. How are we going to do it? The people will get upset. We've got to do it by stealth. We gotta... Man, if only we had someone on the inside. That's probably what some of those chief priests are thinking. And then Judas falls right in their lap. Verses 14 through 16, a betrayer hired. So betrayer's known. Betrayer is inspired, which we just saw. And now a betrayer is hired. Then one of the 12... And there's the irony. Don't miss that. One of the twelve, one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests. He said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. This is actually a sad tale because 30 pieces of silver was not a lot of money. And it shows how lightly Jesus was esteemed by both Judas and by the chief priests. Exodus tells us, that 30 pieces of silver is what you would pay someone if your bull accidentally gored their slave and killed your slave. 30 pieces of silver. We know that Joseph in, the, in Genesis was sold by his brothers. I think it was 20 pieces of silver, something like that. I can't remember exactly, but he, he I believe, was a type of Christ, a prefiguring of this very event. He is lightly esteemed. What I think is happening here is Judas, again, has these great dreams of power and riches serving at, at King Messiah Jesus' side as we take back Israel and maybe somehow uh, overthrow Rome. I mean, he has all these supernatural powers and everything. And I think Judas now has given up. He's done, and he figures, well, I've got to get something on the way out. I've got to cash in. I need some, something tangible for my troubles. And we have 30 pieces of silver. So from this point on, Judas is looking for an opportunity. So a betrayer is hired. Now you can imagine after these events, the name Judas wasn't uh, included in the baby name books anymore for many, many centuries, right? In fact, Jesus had a brother, a half-brother named Judas, and he wrote a book in the New Testament. And what book is that? Jude. So he kind of changes his name even, it seems. Now, I don't know if that's the case, but it seems like that. It wouldn't, uh, wouldn't be a surprise. Judas' name... For, for Again, 2,000 years is synonymous with betrayal, just like Benedict Arnold is in our country's history. Uh, so he is now a betrayer. If you look at the three gospel accounts, uh, the first three, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Luke, you see the list of the disciples. Every single time, Peter is first, Judas is last. 
better that he wouldn't be born. Now we have the betrayer. And this is a good little, another point of application for us. It's really important when we go to share the gospel with somebody, that when we share the gospel, we share the biblical Christ. Now, Judas had a completely wrong understanding of the Messiah. And a lot of that had to do with his sin, misinformation, and the Jewish you know, false expectations, things like that. In fact, all the disciples didn't understand the Messiah's mission. But when we share the gospel, let us make sure we are sharing it from the scriptures. Let us make sure we're sharing the biblical Christ and not a false Christ that is somehow associated with America or prosperity or things like that. Very important. I think it's a very important point of application to make as we move on because Judas didn't get it at all. All right, so we've seen uh, all these points of the betrayer. How he was known, how he was needed, how he was inspired, and how he was hired. And finally, we get to the night in the upper room where the betrayer is revealed. And this takes place uh, at the beginning of the Passover. There's three major festivals in the Jewish calendar. The most important one, the first one, is the Feast of the Unleavened Bread that occurs during Passover, the beginning of Passover. So they're in the upper room. We know this story well. Uh, they, They get the place secure. They get it prepared. And then in verse 20, you see in verse 21, Jesus revealing that one of them would betray him. One of them would betray him. And of course, they're all like, is it I? Is it I? Is it me? Did I do it? And Jesus says, one who dips his hand into the bowl with me. Now, every time I used to read this, I used to think like, right when he says that, it's the guy at that moment whose whose bread is dipping in the bowl. And he's like, whoa, not me. But what this is, is a phrase. What he's saying is somebody close, a friend, someone who shares the common table with me, the most intimate of relationships, one of you, one of my closest companions. You see Psalm 41.9, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Jesus actually quotes this in John's account, John chapter 13. That's what he means by the hand who's, who's dipping in the dish with him. And then he says, the son of man, look at verse 24, the son of man goes as, as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born at all. Now Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, rabbi? And he said to him, you have said so. So again, we see the sovereignty of God. We see that Jesus is completely sovereign. Again, the stealth thing doesn't work. It, wouldn't, it would have been weird for Judas not to say, just like everyone else, is it I, is it me? And, of course, this is lost on the rest of the disciples. John tells us that. They don't understand the interchange between the two of them. But Jesus reveals that he knows. And Jesus, again, shows that he is in control of this situation. So with all that, we have painted this picture of betrayal. We have shown the human sin and depravity that God is sovereignly using to bring Christ to the cross. We see, of course, the rejection and the hatred by the false or by the, the chief priests and by the Jewish elders and teachers. And of course, we see one of his own betraying him. The worst of all betrayers in history. Now we transition to the nature of Jesus Christ. Now we transition to this character we see of him. And you'll see, but God, Messiah steadfast. We're just going to see this in two quick episodes. His steadfastness, and his submissiveness to the mission. What we have here, we have to remember, is this is the climax of redemptive history. 
We've talked a lot about this in our time together. And it began all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 when the rescue mission was first announced. Right after Adam and Eve sinned. Right after creation, in a sense, comes crumbling down and, and God's plan, it seems, has fallen apart. But you can't catch God off guard. He had a plan already, worked in his triune nature of the rescuer who would come. And that's where we're at in the course of history, in the course of time, in the course of the scriptures, the climatic moment. And so we see the Lord's Supper, verses 26 to 29, and he is instituting the new covenant. Let's read this together. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, a couple of important points here. Of course, this is the Lord's Supper. Uh, the words, this is my body, has probably been more written and more arguments and debates in the last 2,000 years because of those four words in anything. Obviously, we know that the Catholic Church believes that uh, the little bread wafers that they partake during their communion service actually and literally is transformed into the body of Christ. Uh, they take this a little too. They don't understand what's happening here. And we'll talk more about that in time. But he says this, and, and what we really need to understand, we don't have the time to, to give to this this morning, but this is about the substitutionary atonement. Those two words are so important. Substitutionary atonement. And when I worship, when I uh, partake in the Lord's Supper, which, by the way, we're going to do in the near future as we become a church here at the Church of Blue Ridge, but when I take part in the Lord's Supper, the way I think of it is the body makes me think of the fact that Jesus is the substitute. He has stood in my place. I should, be, I should have been on the cross. I should have died. He substituted for me. And the body, his body is broken, just like the bread is broken in my place. And it's so important. And when it comes to the blood, that's the word atonement. So substitutionary atonement. He spills his blood to, for, help, to, to cause the forgiveness of my sins, to wash away my sins as one that he has chosen to save substitutionary atonement. And when it says that he took the cup, you may or may not know this, but the cup in the Old Testament is always associated with the wrath of God, the pouring out of God's wrath. He took that cup. He took that wrath on my behalf and yours for those who are in Christ. He took it for us. It's amazing. And what, what I want us to see here is in the midst of this betrayal, in the midst of all that's happening that Jesus knows about. He knows all this is happening. He knows what's getting ready to happen the next day. And he is so committed, so steadfast to the mission. That's what amazes me. That's what I want us to see in contrast to all the human action that's taken place. All the hatred, all the betrayal. And he knows it all. One thing we have to understand is Jesus was not a martyr. Okay, Jesus was not a martyr. He gave his life willingly. He could have said stop at any moment and it all would have stopped. And that's what is so amazing to me. He didn't veer from the mission because what we have with the Lord's Supper is the institution of the new covenant. All of the Old Testament covenants from, from uh, Noah to Abraham, Moses, David, they all arrive here at this moment in time. This is what it's all about. The climatic moment in the rescue mission, the new covenant. And we have a Savior who doesn't veer away. 
he doesn't say stop. He is steadfast and committed to the mission, which is our salvation. Don't miss that. Don't miss the beauty of this moment. He took the cup. Poured out for many. An incredible passage from a steadfast Savior. You'll see uh, some passages here on the screen. Just a, a couple Old Testament passages that connect the blood, the spilling of blood to the covenant. In Exodus 24, 8, at the inauguration of the Mosaic Covenant, says Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. And he said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. How much more now with the new covenant and what Christ has done for us on the cross. Zechariah 9.11 has a prophecy of the new covenant. He says, As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. And then the writer of Hebrews tells us in the book of Hebrews there, And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood, that's talking about Moses, sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, my family loves superhero movies. We have thoroughly enjoyed the whole Marvel movie craziness over the last decade. It has been a lot of fun. But one thing about all the heroes, the man-made heroes, whether it's DC Comics, Marvel, or someone else, every single one of them has a flaw, a very big flaw. And I actually like that. There's no hero we can come up with through our human imagination that is truly a hero. But Jesus Christ is the real hero. And we see that here because of his commitment, because he at any moment had the power to make it all stop, and he didn't. He didn't stop. So we have a Savior who is steadfast. We also have a Savior who is submissive. Look with me now as we arrive at the garden. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Someone help me out here. I cannot say this word. Just, thank you. It's one of those tongue-tied words. I can't say it. They're making fun of me. I was making fun of myself at small group the other night. So he's in the garden now. The Lord's Supper has ended. They, they kind of walked back to the Mount of Olives where this garden is. In fact, there's supposedly olive trees still there today that were there during this event. At least I've been told. It's pretty amazing. And he takes the disciples, tells them to sit here. Then he takes his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, a little bit farther And look what he says. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. The word there refers to a very deep distress. He says, I am very sorrowful. Stay here and watch with me. He wanted these three, his his closest of the disciples, to pray with him. And you know what? They had good reason to pray because... We missed this section. We're going to pick it up next, next week with the, with the predictions of Jesus that all of the sheep would be scattered. All the disciples would, would flee and abandon him. Peter, in fact, would deny him three times. And so you think these guys would be like, you know what? I don't want that to happen. Let's pray. They fall asleep. I would have too. There's no doubt. I would have been gone. So Jesus, though, goes and prays. And let's look at his prayer. This is so important in verse 39. Going a little farther, he fell on his face And he prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. 
little bit further in verse 42. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. A few things to observe here. The humanity of Jesus Christ is coming out. Now, he was 100% God, or he is 100% God, 100% man. And we focus so much on his deity. We have to remember, too, he was all man. And so for me, this is encouraging as, as the writer of Hebrews tells us that our Savior suffered and was tempted in every way that we are, and yet without sin. And so he's here. He's not, he's not afraid. He's not scared. He just knows what's coming, and, and his humanity is coming out. And he's saying if there's any other way, he's not abandoning the mission, but if there's any way to accomplish this, any other way. But he didn't allow for one second. He said, it, not my will, your will be done. And as we said, if there is no other way, unless I drink it, your will be done. We have a a submissive Savior. He was committed and steadfast, also submissive to the will of the Father. And uh, by the way, I brought this book. Parents, grandparents, this is an excellent book to purchase for your children. It's called The Prince's Poison Cup. It was written by R.C. Sproul. That's why I like R.C. Sproul. He can write these incredible theological books for adults. And then he can write children's books. But this is one of the best presentations of the gospel in a fiction or in a metaphor. A beautiful book. And it focuses a lot, obviously, on the cup. And what I love in this passage is you look back at the Lord's Supper. He refers to a cup that we get to drink. And then you go fast forward to the garden, which we just read. He talks about the cup that he has to drink. And his cup is the cup of God's wrath. All of God's wrath for sin poured out on Christ. It wasn't the cross that was the bad part. And when we see that and it's like, oh my goodness, you know, he's the nails hanging. Yeah, that's the worst form of capital punishment ever. But that was nothing compared to what we didn't see. And that was the father turning his back on the son and pouring out all of his wrath on the God man that, that should have been poured out on us for our sin. And he drank that cup on our behalf. And we, who are his children, get to drink the cup of fellowship, the new covenant cup. Uh, and that's why we do the Lord's Supper, to remember, to worship, and to praise him for what he has done. It's amazing, though, to see him here and to see him being honest. And, and I think this is really, I know it's really for us. How many of us have gone through, are going through, or will go through difficult circumstances? Circumstances where our faith is challenged to the core. Circumstances where we just feel like wanting to give up. And this, for me personally, has been one of the passages where I've drawn so much strength to be able to go back and look at our Savior and to see His words and to learn from Him how to follow truth and not my feelings in the worst of circumstances. So I encourage you, Bookmark this passage. Remember it for those days. Or maybe you're going through something right now where this can be an encouragement. To see him, to see his words, and to, and, to, and to take on his example and his attitude in whatever it is that we're walking through. Because if you're not going through something difficult, you will. It's what life is. It's why we need each other. It's why we, uh, that's one of our passions in this church is the sense of community, that we're living life together, that we're loving one another as we go through brokenness. And of course, we, we need to mention, as most of you know, one of our own this week was involved in a horrible, horrible accident. Uh, Joey Hyatt. I know you all are praying for Joey. He's at the Burn Center in Augusta. 
And, uh, you know, just think of his wife and his family as they're going through this tragedy with him and pray these very words for them. Just like we prayed out there this morning uh, before the setup, just praying for them to follow truth and not feelings and to continue to do God's will despite the difficulties that they face. So important, so important. Another passage I encourage you to is 2 Corinthians 12. That's where we see the great example of Paul. Remember that? The thorn in the flesh. And what does he say? What does he conclude? He asks God to take it from him several times. And finally he says, God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient. My power is made perfect in weakness. So just some great stuff for us as we swing at life together, as we walk through uh, some difficult things. So we see this great savior we have we see this committed steadfast and submissive savior where he continues on the mission and look at verse 45 the time for sleep is over (laughs) should have been the time for prayer is over but they were sleeping he says uh, says then he came to the disciples and he said to them sleep and take your rest later on see the hour is at hand and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinner rise let us be going see my betrayer is at hand. What I love there is you see a strong Savior. You see a Savior who, because of his time of prayer in the garden, is now strengthened. Uh, we, we learn, I think, in Luke's gospel that, that angels ministered to him during this time. He's strengthened. He's ready now to finish the mission. Unfortunately, the disciples didn't take advantage of the time, and they don't have that same strength. And we're going to see them uh, now as the betrayer comes. And that's the final part of today's sermon, just simply that the betrayal is complete. Verses 47 through 56 shows us Judas leading the mob to the secret place in the, in the, the Olivet Garden there and uh, arresting Jesus. Look at verse 48. He's not called Judas anymore. He's got a new name. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man sees him. And in all irony, he comes up to Jesus and greets him as rabbi. How sad. Now he doesn't call him rabbi for his sake. He calls him rabbi to show the mob who the guy is, because it's dark. Everyone kind of looks the same back then. Uh, and so most of the folks wouldn't have recognized him. And then he kisses him, making that famous phrase, betrayed by a kiss. But what I love here and what I want us to kind of end with is, again, seeing the sovereignty of Jesus Christ and the control of this entire situation. Verse 50, Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Again, he's not caught off guard. He knows this forward and backwards. Very aware, no stealth going on for Jesus. Do what you came to do. And then they seized and took him. And of course, Peter at this point, I think what's happening with Peter, he's heard all these predictions about their defection, about them running, about his own three denials. What does he do? He takes a sword. Up. I'm going I'm to show my worth. I'm going to take the sword. And of course, he cuts the guy's ear off. And that didn't work out so well. But look what he says in verse 53, Jesus. He says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. Again, he could have ended this at any moment, but he didn't. He continued on. Why? Verse 54, so the scriptures would be fulfilled. So the mission would be complete. So our salvation as his children would be secure. What a savior we have in Jesus Christ. What an incredible king we have in Jesus Christ. I want to go ahead and invite the guys back up as we close. And just kind of bring us to the point of conclusion. And my encouragement for those of you who are saved, who are God's children. Again, meditate on some of the truths we looked at today in this passage. 
some of the ones that were important for me, just the idea of something beautiful. That something that was rejected by the disciples, something that was seen as a waste, was so beautiful and so precious to Christ. What in our lives are we in danger of making that same mistake with? Let us have eyes like God. Let us see people in situations like he sees them. Also, just seeing the sovereignty of God in the most difficult of circumstances. As we go through brokenness, as individuals, as families, as a church, as a nation, that we would understand he is always in control. There's never a time or a situation where he is not. We have a king who rules. And then finally, following his example. Let us see Jesus as our, our, our flag bearer, our leader, our king. And let us imitate him in life when difficulties come up against us, when challenges come up against us, when we want so badly to quit. Let us say with Christ, Not my will be done, but your will be done. And let us learn to follow truth and not our feelings in those moments. And finally today, if you're not sure or you know that you're not a follower of Christ, that's why we're here. We're here to share the gospel. So please don't let a moment go by. Come and talk to one of us. Email us. Chase us down during the week. Myself, Robert, others in here. We want to share the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which we're looking at in detail these next few weeks. Uh, So let a day not go by where you don't ask about that truth and hear of the glorious rescue mission of our creator. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this first look in these episodes from your passion to the Pentecost. We thank you, Lord, for your example. You are incredible and we give you glory and praise this morning. Help us to understand that when we look at the depth of sin, whether it be the sin of of your enemies in this passage or even our own sin, the gospel shines so bright and the rescue mission of your grace is amazing. But Father, for those of us who are your children, let us not keep that a secret. Let us, especially this Easter season, have the courage, whether it be walking across the room, walking across the cul-de-sac or walking across my office to share the gospel with someone or even connect and begin a relationship to tell someone of the truth of Jesus Christ. Let us take this out and go public and not be ashamed, not be ashamed. We love you so much, Father. We thank you for this time. Impress upon our hearts your glorious grace. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.